וגם אני פתאום רואה את הקולות. And welcome to Kolot. This is your host, Hillel Kappenstein, director of the Columbus Community Kolot, and it's a great honor and privilege to welcome you to our next episode featuring John Diamond. This is really something I've been looking forward to for a long time. I want to say on a personal level, uh, you know, many of you know that the Kolot for Outreach has done a lot of, um, a lot of areas that we focus on um, could be all over the all over Columbus, but one you know specific area that we really try to uh, make an, a big impact is with our Bexley public school students, which uh, we have more of coming later this week and COVID hasn't stopped that. And it was about a year or two ago where I was watching some videos of um, of the Diamond children and one of their one of the one of I think it was uh, Jillian that was talking about how when she was younger, Uh, she and her family put together this uh, public school learning thing that, thank God, is um, still going on today, and I have the privilege of being a small part of that. So when I learned that it was the diamonds that were so um, influential in this specific part of Kolo Outreach, and in, in addition to all the other things that they were instrumental in about the Kolo, um, I got really excited when we had this opportunity to bring uh, John Diamond onto our program. We're going to have a great discussion about business, retail, Uh, Israel advocacy we're gonna cover a lot of grounds we'll try to you know get it in and you're gonna have a lots to hopefully take home share with your friends share with your family so without further ado I want to tell all of you about our guest is a native of Cleveland, Ohio, and attended the Ohio State University. He began his professional career working for his father, Herbert Diamond, co-founder of the Diamonds Men's Store clothing chain. John has played numerous leadership roles in national and local not-profit endeavors. John currently sits on the Pro-Israel America Board of Directors, which is dedicated to raising and directing funds to promote bipartisan pro-Israel congressional candidates. In 2005, John was named to the National Governing Board of APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, serving 15 years until 2020. John is a past member of the Executive Committee of the Columbus Jewish Federation. John has served in various capacities for numerous local organizations, including Central Ohio State of Israel Bonds, Shanstein Chabad House, Jewish Community Center, and Wexner Heritage Village. He was active on the Columbus Torah Academy board, including a term as president from 2000 to 2002. John was the founding vice chairman of the Columbus Community Kolel and the founding president of Torah Emet Synagogue. John, thanks so much for joining Kolot. Yeah, good morning, Rabbi. I'll tell you, the music was so inspiring. I feel like jumping in the ring and going toe-to-toe with Apollo Creed. Very nice. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Thank you. Appreciate that. So thank you for coming on the show. I wanted to, first for our listeners, if you could share with us a little bit about yourself, your background, upbringing, education, and if you also can t- share with us your first ever job. Well, what struck me as you're reading that resume or that, uh, that, that short bio is that how much time has gone by. You know, I, <laughs> Somebody just told me the other day that from the day I graduated uh, high school in Orange, Uh, in Cleveland in 1975, 
Uh, it's just as far backwards as it is forwards to the year 1919. It was a horrifying mm. thought. I said, my God, am I that old? But listening to the bio, I guess I guess I am, as, after all the things that you mentioned that are that are in my rearview mirror. Um, I'll tell you something. You know, Columbus is a tr- tremendous community. Um, I'm very fortunate to have raised my family there. Um, I was born in Cleveland, uh, but uh, went to school in Cleveland High School and then went to the Ohio State University and and really virtually never went back. You know, I met a Columbus girl, Susie, and uh, married her in the early 1980s, settled in Columbus where I had my family and and uh, it was uh, a great place to be. Great, great. Well, speaking of your family, you have three incredible children who are deeply committed to helping the Jewish people. Can you share with us what specifically makes you so proud of them? Well, I can tell you that, uh, you know, I love my children as, as all of us do equally. Um, as I like to joke with them, I'm not, I'm not done raising them, even though <laughs> they're 34, 32 and 28. Uh, I'm still raising them. They're great kids. Um, growing up in Columbus in a, in a, in a leadership role with the federations and the schools and the synagogues, you know, I, I saw too often where families succession uh, stopped with the death of, of the patriarch or the matriarch. And, you know, that struck me as being one of the most important obligations and responsibilities that I have as a parent is making sure that my children understand the importance of the place they hold in the communities that they live. Uh, we're very fortunate. We've been blessed um, with resources. And, you know, I, I always learned that fire and, and money are similar. You know, fire can be good. It could warm you. It could, you could use it to cook. It could, it, could, it could be a great thing, but it can also destroy. Well, same with money. Money is great. It's great to have it. But unless you use it for good, it can also be, be uh, negative. So, you know, one of my most important uh, goals as a parent was to make sure my kids get it. And they understand that it's not just a matter of, of uh, you know, having a family themselves, but of being an integral part of a community in which they are a positive force toward the greater good. So you know, that's kind of been Susie and my whole mantra as we've raised our children and as we continue to raise our children. That's beautiful. Uh, I, and it's unfortunately rare to hear it articulated um, that well. Um, and it, actually, you remind me of the video you did for us earlier when we did an event with the theme of Lador Vador. And I, I got the feeling you were saying those words with passion, uh, with a, a deeper meaning, because I think you repeated it. You really wanted to hammer it. And uh, it's interesting when I now hear you talk about your kids, uh, I, I, I connect the two because they, they, uh, they sound very relatable. Um, well, Rabbi, I, I have to say that, you know, oftentimes, you know, as we all know, when, when we meet face to face with other community leaders, and other organizational leaders, they'll always be looking for greater gifts. You know, it doesn't do us an organization any good if their donors stay in the same mm-hmm. level of, don- of, of, of giving because, you know, expenses go up. Sure. So I've always told these organizations I, you know, we've got great capacity to give you greater gifts. You know how? Through my children <laughs> who are now adults. They're all earning money. Uh, my increased giving is emanates through my children. Right. And, you know, I believe that that's, you know, it, it's that's the, the, the benefit of, of raising kids that get it. And I think, too, it's it's important for the organizations to understand that they, too, must always be looking to um, 
to connect with the next generation and that you can't always focus on on the current fa- the current uh, givers of a family they've always got to be bringing up the young kids and getting them involved and i think one of the things to your credit and to the colos credit is that they've done a spectacular job of 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 integrating their benefit to the community through the young people and and that's i think why the community colel you know it was what 25 years in and going strong i mean that <laughs> you're 27 i think 27 it's amazing to me yeah. 27 years and going strong yeah so. no that's great i think and, and you know something that literally just struck me the the one day of the week where there's like this special connection between the jewish people and our creator shabbat is ushered in when we when when uh, the mother lights candles and says a, pr- a prayer about her children specifically, there seems to be that very strong um, correlation between Hashem and us, and then passing it on, uh, making sure that they're carrying that as well. Um, now getting to your professional life. Um, how did safe auto come about? It's an insurance company that really, I think um, branded itself as something that everyone should be able to afford, be comfortable with. Um, and it kind of had a, a really strong uniqueness. Can you walk us through how, you know, the genesis of all of this regarding safe auto? Yeah, well, you know, there's an old saying, I'd rather be lucky than good. And I think that I've been very blessed and I'm very lucky. First of all, I, I learned from my father when I grew up in the family clothing business about how salesmanship is the most important attribute uh, that one could have, regardless of what they do for a living. If you can sell, you can sell your ideas, you can sell your products, you can sell yourself. Um, so, you know, I learned as a salesman selling clothing in the men's clothing business, that was an important personal trait. So I tried to develop that in myself. Uh, and then I spent a decade or so working, you know, with Jerome Schottenstein, who, you know, to this day, and he's been gone since, gosh, you know, 27, 20, I mean, a long time. And, and, you know, he, he was a terrific mentor, taught me so much about, about business and about integrity and about how to treat people. Um, and then I got lucky because, you know, I was here, I was the owner's son and I became an owner's son-in-law. And then, and then I worked for my brother-in-law, Jay, for many years. I was the owner's brother-in-law. My other brother-in-law, Ari Desha, came to me one day and says, Johnny, you know, I've got this idea uh, to start this insurance company direct to consumer. There's one like it on the West Coast that since have gone out of business because they grew so fast, they couldn't handle it. So that's the good thing. They, they grew, but they just weren't underwriting the risk properly and they went bankrupt. And, you know, I, I never worked in more of an office with three people, Larry said to me. He says, you've worked with thousands of people for your family and for, you know, our mutual family. Because, as you know, Ari's my brother-in-law, married to Ann Desha mm-hmm. and Schottenstein. So he said, be my partner. Start this company in 1993. Be your own boss. Not not a son-in-law, not a brother-in-law, be your own boss. So I took that risk, uh, started from scratch, and you know, we never looked back. 1993, we started the company. August, I think, 21st, we opened our doors. And uh, 27, 28 years later, uh, we just recently completed our exit uh, where we sold the company to Allstate. And it was bittersweet to, to grow something that became part of your own personal DNA. But we were proud of where we had brought it and felt that there wasn't family in the business, that we needed an exit. And we were very uh, honored that a company like Allstate would see value in our company and buy us out, which we completed in October of 2021. 
One of the things that we're most proud of at Safe Auto that uh, that you know, I just like to make sure that is is on the record. You know, when we started the business in 1993, uh, insurance companies were very stoic. You know, get a piece of the rock. You're in good hands. I mean, they were all very stoic, very institutional. Uh, we decided to be different because we were a direct-to-consumer. We had no agents or agencies to uh, to appease. Um, it was strictly company employees that would handle the incoming phone calls. We were the first company that I know that used humor to sell auto insurance. Mm-hmm. And so for us, it was a it, it was a blending of Madison Avenue met Vine Street. You know, Hollywood met New York. You know, the the, the intersection of entertaining for the sake of selling auto insurance. It was unheard of back in nineteen. Before this is before Geico. Geico, they 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 were never did they uh-huh. run a funny commercial till uh, till ten years after Safe Auto started <laughs> uh, with the funny commercials. And I think that's what made us uh, be able to grow under the under the nose of the big behemoths of Progressive, which is an mm-hmm. Ohio company. I mm-hmm. one time heard that they were shocked to learn that Safe Auto had grown to be, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of premium in 20 states under their nose. Wow. And um, it was because I believe that we were the first to tap into this, this, this entertaining quality of selling auto insurance, which, as you know, uh, it exploded you know, in the 2000s and beyond where, you know, uh, the, the insurance companies that we were competing with uh, were spending billions of dollars a year advertising. And it just got increasingly more difficult, which is really one of the reasons for our exit. It just uh-huh. it's hard you know, sure. Uh, sure. To, to compete. And, you know, we're watching, you know, a company like Root, which is an mm-hmm. Ohio, local. A, a local startup struggling oh, yeah. with the share of voice, with the expense structure to be able to to attract the consumers competing against these these big boys that are just will outspin you a hundred to one. It's a, right. it's a difficult environment. But you know, back in our day, we were able to do it because it was before they were really woken up. So yeah. I find my that's why I'd rather be lucky than good. Timing is right. everything. Right. No, that's great. And I love that. I love that. So now let's move on to advocacy. Um, I believe I met you for the first time, John, at a APAC convention. Um, and I'm curious how did you get involved with APAC and what are you most proud of regarding APAC? Um, well, I think first of all, we, Susie and I, you know, whether I'm serve on the board or she serves on the board, you know, we're, we're partners and, you know, we saw an opportunity or we saw a need during the, uh, the intifadas that mm-hmm. happened in the, in the nineties and uh, when travel to Israel stopped. And so one of our programs that we funded in Columbus was family trips to Israel through the Federation. Uh, I remember going there one time and being thanked for coming because nobody was visiting Israel. Everybody was afraid to go um, for fear of, you know, what might happen with a suicide bomber. Uh, But we felt it necessary to, to continue that connection to Israel, even in times that we felt were, were difficult times for Israel. So it was around the same time that we thought, well, how do how, how do we um, invest our philanthropic money in organizations that are forced multipliers, that you get leverage, that you get more bang for your buck? And when we looked around, you know, we felt that APEC was so important to assuring a close relationship between the United States and Israel at a time when Israel... Uh, so urgently needed that economic support 
to defend herself. After all, Israel has the highest percentage of its GDP um, allocated towards towards their defense. So, you know, when I first started, you know, it was a lesser amount. But today, you know, Israel is getting over $3 billion a year from the United States. And that doesn't happen automatically. That happened by cultivating relationships with members of Congress uh, who who uh, are the ones to allocate and approve this kind of funding. It, it happens by, by nurturing relationships with, with the incoming uh, White House uh, habitants. Um, and as you've watched over the course of time, it's not getting any easier. Right. Um, right. So, you know, we saw back in those days the, the need to, you know, fund this organization because we felt that it, it leveraged our money by, by giving more money to Israel through the United States uh, um, financial allocation. You know, um, we had on Howard Friedman, uh, uh, who I believe you know well, a past uh, president of APAC, and what he shared with me something really interesting that what he loved, one of the things that he loves the most about APAC is that he sits on the board of the largest kolel in the country, uh, Beth Medrash Gavoa and Lakewood, where I came from. And he also sat on APAC and he said, I have people in APAC that don't know anything about Torah and, but we have the same passion for Israel. Have you found that as well, that there was this unifying force that bridges gaps that we until now were way too big. Yeah. Rabbi, first of all, a shout out to, uh, to Howard's fee. Friedman. Yeah. Uh, it was Howard that I met, uh, as, as we both were, were advocates, strong advocates and benefactors of Joe Lieberman uh-huh. and his run for both the presidency and, and, and prior to that, the vice presidency with Al Gore. Uh-huh. So that's where we met. And when Howard uh, ascended to the board of, of APAC and became its president, it was actually Howard who recruited me to the board. Uh-huh. So I give him all the credit uh, in the world for getting me uh, involved nationally. And uh, I also understand that he did a a, a colat uh, segment sure. and if, if i'm following him there's there's rules i live by <laughs> don't follow children animals or howard friedman when you're doing a gig because he's very hard to follow <laughs> he's a colorful guy and, and and in my view was one of the most effective presidents that uh that apac has ever had because he's so memorable uh he's such a large personality he's uh he's he's uh not afraid to be himself whether he's in front of me in front of you or in front of Barack Obama. I mean, right. to him, it doesn't matter. Right. He mentioned uh, that. And, and, you know, he's very easy to remember. He always has his kippa on. He's, uh, he's got a great sense of humor, but he's smart as, 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 as anything. And he is passionate as there, as, as there is. So uh, that's long story short is I'm a big fan of Howard Friedman. I give him a lot of credit for what he's accomplished. Uh, in his life, and uh, he looks great. By the way, he's lost yeah, a lot of yeah, weight. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, he's a he's a zady. He's got a lot of grandkids. His life is good for him, and he's earned it. He's deserved. And, and his wife was just appointed by uh, President Biden, so that was yeah. like wow. A lot but of they're uh, also a, they're also a very talented couple, right? Uh, no question about it. I, I want to ask you a little bit about your relationships that you were that you made in. Um, in Congress tomorrow, God willing, we will be recording with Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, which is yeah. really exciting. And yeah. she's mentioned about your relationship with her. How, if you could talk about how you got to know the Congresswoman and maybe some other members of Congress that you've that you've de- developed a relationship with, and actually how that translated into something good for Israel. Well, first of all, being a local 
Central Ohio uh, uh, boy, I, I, I make it my business to know all of the members that, that are in my own backyard. I, I had other mm-hmm. key contacts in other areas of the country, but, but um, you, you've got to first, you know, cultivate the relationships at home. And uh, you know, so when Joyce Beatty was elected, you know, I, of course, uh, make, make it my business to get to know her. And she's a lovely woman, the highest standard. And, and you cultivate a relationship by having open conversations about things that are important to each of us. And really, that's how that's happened. Um, I, I've got a couple stories, one that I think uh, is interesting. And, you know, I don't like to use names and I won't. I'll, I'll just say that, that the whole business model of, of the pro-Israel community, and I'm not really talking APAC, but the pro-Israel community, members like me who, who, who make it their business to be willing to write checks for candidates on both sides of the aisle solely on their perspective of the U.S.-Israel relationship. And, you know, it's hard for some people to check other issues and ideals at the door. And we run up against that all the time. But, you know, I, I you know, made the decision that I'm going to ignore the other issues and I'm going to fund with my own resources people, candidates and, and, and incumbents who see the U.S.'s relationship as being vital as I do. So there's hundreds, thousands of us like me around the country. And I liken it to when in the old times you'd have a fire in your barn. Some of the, some of the locals are dipping the bucket in the water and passing it in, in a line, and some of the people are the ones throwing down the fire. Well, that's the way our advocacy works. Because we're all expected to cultivate relationships, and you never know what migration a member's uh, career might have. But eventually, if you're in the game as long enough as I've been, your member becomes a leader. And you'll be called upon to be the one throwing the pail on the fire, mm-hmm. getting the meeting for Howard Core or Richard Fishman or any of our, of our uh, uh, lobbyists to, to be able to get a meeting uh, to talk about an important issue. So, you know, there's been times where, you know, I'm the one just writing the check and, you know, so, so for somebody else to be that key contact, to have the access uh, with that member, or as has happened to me, I'm the one that's picking up the phone and asking that member to please, you know, give of their time so we can express ourselves on this important issue that you are leading on. So uh, that that's happened. I think that's a very important proponent as to what we do and why we do it. I'll give you an example of something that happened last week. Mm-hmm. And I'll give this name because uh, uh, it's, it's my new congresswoman here in, uh, in Miami. She uh, is a Republican who ran against Donna Shalala, who's a former uh, uh, housing secretary. And she uh, lost the first time to Donna Shalala, but beat her the second time. So I got to know her over the past this past summer. I hosted her in in my home in Colorado, uh, spent some time hiking with her. We got very friendly, and I encouraged her to sign up for the freshman mission to Israel, where they go with other freshmen in Congress and are led by whether it be Steny Hoyer on the Repu- Democratic side or uh, 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 McCarthy on the on the Republican side. So she signed up to go. And so all along, you know, it got delayed. The trip got delayed because of COVID. But now they're going in February. So I get the the final roster of members going. And her name was on the list for the last five months. I get the list uh, this week. 
and her name's not on the list. I immediately text her. I said, Maria, her name is Maria Salazar. She's wonderful. I said, Maria, you're not signed up on the, on the trip. What happened? Because my office, uh, the APAC office called me after I found out and, and inquired. They said, yeah, somebody from her scheduling department said that there was a problem and they had to take her off the list. So I immediately texted her. I said, Maria, this is a life-changing opportunity for you to both see Israel with your own eyes and meet the other members and get to know leadership. I says, you, you've got to go. Sure enough, she says, Johnny, I'll get back to you. Well, what happened? Happy, happy ending. She's re-signed up and is now going on the trip. Wow. But you know, this is the kind of advocacy that, that uh, inspires me to keep doing it. Even after you know, 18 years, I'm de- it's all about relationships and being, being friendly enough with Maria Salazar to say to her, Maria, you're making a mistake. You must go. You got to shuffle things around. This is going to change your life. And, you know, she's going. So I I told her I want to go out to dinner with her afterwards. I want to get a full briefing of what she experienced. (laughs) And I I know based on my experience with other members, this is a a life-changing trip that she will absolutely love. So I I think that's a great story. No, and 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 it's it's uh, very representative of of what happens when you do the one on one effort yeah. with, to spend time with people. Um, you mentioned something. Check your politics at the door. Now we yeah. we actually just did an episode with Jason Greenblatt, um, who yeah. was very uh, you know worked a lot with the Abraham Accords and. I was just like fascinated. How do you sit down with Palestinians? He had a Shabbat dinner with them. I was like, holy cow! That was. I mean, it's, yeah, I, yeah, and and then he talked about some of the things he did in the United Arab Emirates, and he made the same point: check your politics, check the bag at the door. You don't bring it with you. You got to be a listener and and build that relationship. Here's my question: It's a little bit of a, a hard issue, a little bit of a sensitive issue. What happens when you do see people that bring politics outside, you know, from where it belongs? For example, I, I'm from Atlanta, so you know, big Braves fan. Um, and it was a great world series. Shout out to all the Jewish players who played in it, but they had, you know, we had the all-star game taken away from Georgia over a political issue. And I didn't really care what the issue was and who was right, who was wrong. I, I, for me, it was hard to see why did he just bring that in? Like, I want to be enjoy sports with people that I agree with and disagree with without having that get in the way. So my question is, um, we could talk about checking, you know, the bag at the door, but how do we relate when it's, we see that others are bringing it into, in this case, it's entertainment, but it's also been brought in businesses. Well, I think it's a sign of the times. I hope it's a passing, uh, a passing fad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not happy about the polarization within our own political parties. Mm-hmm. I'm not happy with the difficulty that APAC which has always been a bipartisan organization, the difficulty that we're having in, in appealing and, and getting our message, positive message out to the, to the left side of the Democratic Party and the far right side of the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. You know, the middle seems to be shrinking. And it's that that I believe that we need to continue uh, to, to, to aggressively fight. And it transcends now into sports. You think I'm happy about my Cleveland Indians now being called the <laughs> Cleveland Guardians? It's going to take me the rest of my life to get used to that idea. Um, I, you know, I, and I understand it that the Indians could be to some, um, 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 you know, negative connotation, just like the Braves and the Redskins and and the Tomahawk other names, Chop, Tomahawk, all these things. But 
you know, I think we've gone too far and I'm hopeful right. that in time, you know, they'll kind of move back to the middle where, where our differences are embraced and not magnified. And, right. um, you know, it doesn't make me happy. So I, I'm in the same camp as you. I, I, I believe that, uh, that this has gone too far and I hope that it'll move back to more acceptance of, of all of our differences. So. Right. So you're, you're hoping that it's like kind of like the flavor of the month and it yeah. has its highlights and then it moves on. Cause I don't think the majority of people want, I think they want to enjoy sports. They want to enjoy their um, entertainment and do their business without that in the way. So hopefully you're right. It will um, evolve as they say. Um, but it's, it's nothing new. I don't know. Everybody's probably too young to remember when, when Marlon Brando accepted a Academy award and got up there and spoke on behalf. I don't remember. I don't know if it was a, on the Indians or something that he, that was out of left field, very political. I always thought that my, from my actors and entertainment people, I want to be entertained. <laughs> right. People. I want to watch them compete. I, I don't, I don't want to hear their political perspectives that is coming out of their being famous for something else. Right. But, but again, you know, maybe they feel it's their right and obligation to use their platform to reach people to, to get their messages out. And, you know, that's, we're in America where freedom of speech is, is, is cherished. And, you know, perhaps we should be more tolerant of that too. So, you know, sure. very- I get that. I get that. And um, yesterday or re- very recently there was this, big announcement blockbuster announcement for Columbus, Ohio with the big uh, Intel move coming here. Uh, I quickly looked it up and I saw that Intel has a big presence in Israel as well, which could be very interesting. How do you see the Ohio Israel relationship um, given the recent news? How do you think that could impact Israel and also Jews in Ohio? Uh, Well, through the years, I always kind of worked with, with, uh, with other Ohio business leaders trying to um, nurture the relationship between Israel and Ohio. Um, You know, Susie and I fund through um, the Ohio Jewish community organization trips for various legislators and, and, and policymakers so that they can go to Israel, see the, the hotbed of, 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 of companies and intellectual property that, that Israel uh, possesses to try to uh, import it right here to Ohio. Um, so I think it's, it's important as, as, you know, everybody's got to also play local. Not all of us can only play national. And by, by playing local, I mean, you've got to try to, uh, you know, impact positively your local community when it, when it comes to Israel. So, you know, I know in Akron, a friend of mine, uh, Joe Canfer from, uh, from Gojo, has been very successful in creating an angel fund and bringing uh, Israeli businesses to, to that area. You know, we try to do the same thing here in Ohio and need to continue to do so because um, it's, it's great for the community. It's great for Israel and it's great for the Jewish community, which, you know, brings me to another point that I'm really saddened to see because I, I was heavily involved in it when I lived there. And, uh, you know, I knew the family, uh, Irv and his, his uh, son-in-law, um, uh, Michael, uh, that ran uh, the kosher butcher shop. And I'm saddened to see Kroger get out of the kosher business. Right. I know you didn't you know, ask about this, but to me, it yeah. kind of relates to sure. you know, the Jewish community. And, and as someone that, that, that was involved with Torah Academy and, and the synagogues, mm-hmm. always looking to recruit 
um, you know, modern Orthodox families and show them the beauty of central Ohio and what a great place it is to raise your family. You know, I hope that the powers to be that are still in Columbus can figure out a way to improve the, the, the cash route infrastructure for its families. And, uh, you know, I, I know that, uh, you know, Black's Bagels, I, 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 don't, I don't know if their bagels are still kosher in Columbus. I, uh, one, at one site, yeah. At one like site, not. okay. <laughs> you know, because I'm looking out my window, Rabbi, and, and I'm, I, I moved to Florida. I live in Miami, and, you know, I could walk out my door here yeah. and have dinner at a dozen kosher restaurants on my block. And, you know, what's your, I, what's your favorite? Backyard well, barbecue. I ate, I ate last night at Backyard Barbecue. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> I had a great night last night. I I, uh, I went to the to the Heat Lakers game Ooh. and spent we were there the second quarter, third quarter, it was a blowout. Then we left early, my buddy and I, and drove to Backyard Barbecue, <laughs> sat at the bar, watched the second half of the Kansas City Buffalo game, uh, eating kosher ribs. I mean, does it get better than that? Especially with that fourth quarter. Oh, oh my, my gosh. <laughs> I have friends from Buffalo, I was sick for them. You know, oh, it, makes yeah. big, it makes me think that uh, that I don't own exclusively the misery uh, as being a Cleveland Browns fan. That, that, uh, yeah. uh, that was ugly of a loss as I've ever seen. <laughs> That's great. That's a great chill. Last question, because I know we're running out of time. Um, young people, millennials, my people like, you know, in my age bracket, you know, in the 20s and 30s, um, we're having a hard time getting them as passionate about Israel as their as the previous generations obviously college campus has a lot to do with that and big shout out to all of those people that are getting involved to try to make a difference um what's your advice to those people um they don't necessarily have it as you know natural love for israel perhaps and it's maybe not as popular to have to express that love for israel what's your message to them well, it's an area that I get like I get involved in. I I, I served on for many years on the uh, Hillel governing board, national board, uh, believing that the Hillels on campus are, are very important oases of of comfort for Jewish students. Um, one of the programs that my wife and I fund at APEC is the Diamond Internship Program, which which plucks out the best and brightest uh, out of the campuses across the country. They bring them to Israel and to the larger satellites around the country, uh, teaching them how to be effective pro-Israel advocates on campus. Uh, that program is being looked at and is being, it's, it's likely going to be tweaked because it's becoming even more challenging. Um, you know, just the, the intellectuals on campus and their proponent to, to, um, to gravitate towards the pro-Palestinian narrative has caused it to be a very, very dangerous environment for our kids and for all kids to be on, on these campuses. So you know, we've got both an educational problem and a problem with organizations that are getting more effective, whether it be CARE or whether it be uh, uh, the Palestinian organizations that you hear about. Uh, it just seems our adversaries are getting more sophisticated too. So we've got to always continue to get better. So, you know, I'm looking for opportunities as a philanthropist to do things that could positively affect that environment. Uh, we're talking to a lot of organizations. One that comes to mind is the Canary Project. Uh, another one that comes to mind that we're getting involved in is called the Six Star, which is an organization that, that takes uh, uh, progressive, um, pro-Israel progressives 
and give them a platform to amplify their messages. Mm-hmm. So I like what they're doing. So we're always looking for things uh, to invest our money in that could confront these problems of the day. I, I'm very concerned about anti-Semitism. I think if you're an American Jew and, and you're not watching, then I think that you're making a big mistake. Right. Uh, because, uh, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And as comfortable as we feel in America as Jews, you know, they probably felt just as comfortable in different times and different eras and different places uh, during the course of time. So we've got to be vigilant. We've got to be smart. We've got to use our sechel and we have to use our resources to make change for the better. And so that's what I spent a lot of time doing now that I'm retired. I spent a lot of time thinking about how, uh, how we can uh, invest with other philanthropists around the country to beat back this tide of, of anti-sentiment, uh, anti-Jewish sentiment and, and anti-Israel sentiment and, and, and the squad members, how we beat them back. And, and um, you know, it, it became very personal for me when the community that I grew up in had a squad wannabe, Nina Turner. Yeah, Chantel Brown. Yeah, yeah. Chantel Brown race was so was so mm-hmm. near and dear to me. My brother uh, lives there. Yep. I grew up there. It's my, I, I always said, how could anybody, Jew, any Jew, live in uh, a community who's, who, who their, their congressperson is uh, Ilian Omar or, oh. or any, of, any of the squad? How do they live there? Meanwhile, I'm thinking, my goodness, if we don't do something, had I not have moved, I'd be living in a community where my congressperson is like an Ilian Omar. So we worked so hard and, and, you know, we needed, we needed to win this so bad as a community, not just because the seat was important, but the message of, mm-hmm. of proactive advocacy still can be effective, albeit expensive. So if anybody is listening to this podcast, I can only tell you that, that each and every one of us matters, uh, whether you're giving $100 or $1,000 or $10,000 to these causes, they all matter. I know kids that left their hometowns and went to Cleveland and knocked on doors. And it really became the bellwether race mm. of, 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 the, of the year in that we took a race that we were down by as many as 20, 30 percent and, and won pretty handedly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were all very proud of it. But more importantly, we were thrilled to have such an important um, advocate as a member of Congress versus another squad member. So uh, th- that was a scary race. I was actually in Cleveland for Shabbat right before that, uh, that election and uh, give c- credit to uh, Eric Frank or Yitz Frank at the Aguda who got up in front of a, cu- a couple hundred people at synagogue. And obviously he didn't you know, say any names or anything like that, but they knew what he was talking about. And it was like the talk of the town over the entire weekend. And then we heard the news, like it, it was like a certain sigh of relief, but also, like you said, a certain like excitement that the the advocacy work still works. It, it, it wasn't you know. the talk of the town just in Cleveland or uh-huh. just in Ohio. Uh-huh. It was the talk of the town nationally. Nationally. And um, hopefully it's a bellwether. The, it's like a game changer that will that will change. In fact, you know, the last thing I'll leave you with, I've, I've got a, a Thursday luncheon with uh, Howard Corr and Richard Fishman. It's like, I'm going to, I'm going to introduce them and it's going to, I'm going to tell a joke. It's like having Billy Joel and Elton John at one concert. I've never in my 20 years of being involved in, in APEC ever had the two of them together 
going to discuss an issue important to APAC. But, you know, APAC is changing its viewpoint on political fundraising. Mm-hmm. They are creating both a, uh, a, a national PAC and a super PAC program mm-hmm. where they're going to, for the first time, we've always said APAC doesn't do politics. Right. Those days are over. APAC now does politics. And there's going to have to be a Chinese wall. And uh, you know, so you can give uh, uh, you know, hard money to the, to the national PAC. So you got limits you can give. And they can give to pro-Israel politicians and candidates. And then there's going to be a super PAC, which corporations and people could write unlimited amounts. And that could only be issue-related items. But uh, you know, APAC, through the change of the environment, and the cost of, of getting involved in, 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 in races decided that it could no longer be an organization that didn't involve itself in political fundraising. So it's a major, major right. change for the organization. And one that, frankly, I think is, is necessary. Right. So, you know, to get Richard Fishman and Howard Core to Ohio Boys, by the way, together uh, uh, is, is, is what's, what's, what tells you just how important of an issue this is. Uh, for the for the pro Israel community of the United States. Wow, wow. No, it's and listen, and, and I'm happy that um, sometimes people get stuck in their ways and they just continue the same mo as if you know nothing happened. But the, life has changed, the world has changed, politics has yeah. changed, and there it's, it's a sign of being with the times, and that's uh, that's always good to see. So, wow, John, we covered a lot. I'm really excited that uh, we're going to be airing this out. Thank God we are in five countries. And it's being listened to um, around the world, not just here in Columbus. We do have plenty of Columbus listeners, but um, your message is a very inspiring and uplifting message. And I'm happy we covered business, tzedakah, Israel, all in one conversation. So thank you so much for joining Coloto. It was a great pleasure to have you. Delight to be here and I call a vote for the work that you're doing. And I look forward to seeing you in person my next trip to Columbus. Or backyard if I come to Surfside. So. You're welcome anytime. <laughs> See you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. To listen to all Colote episodes and see upcoming guests, visit colopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Colote on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Colote is a project of the Columbus Community Colo, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvahs at the Kolel. Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.